www.kcp.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed accurately or rightly dividing the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you are joining us for the first time for the next hour, we'll be taking people's questions. And so if there's a question that you have as you've been studying God's word or an issue you're facing in your personal life or ministry, and we can be of help, feel free to call us or you can email us directly. Give us all the contact information again, Rick. Indeed, it's 843-525-1859, toll free, 877-924-7980. Or you can always uh, reach us by email at tbl at net. And we do actually have a number of questions that have already come in. So uh, let's go to our first uh, dictated question. Somebody would like to know, how ought we study the Bible? Well, it's a good question. Um, You know, I believe one of the aspects that sometimes is neglected today is how to study the Bible for all it's worth. And I did a series in the book of Nehemiah. I probably should do it again. I think it was 10, 15 years ago. And as I worked through verse by verse and chapter by chapter through Nehemiah, I I taught Bible study techniques, you know, techniques of observation, you know, as you observe the text. Uh, techniques of interpretation, what it means, and techniques uh, of application. Uh, What does it mean for my life? How do I apply it? Of course, before you can properly apply a text of Scripture, you have to interpret it in its original historical context. So if you listen to the Nehemiah series, which is online at searchthescriptures.org, I think you would be very helped by that because I speak to a lot of uh, Bible study tools and methods that are available to us as believers that we can utilize that, you know, at other times in the history of the church, people would only have dreamed of. So uh, that's that's what I would suggest. Uh, listen to the Nehemiah series, and you'll learn a lot on Bible study techniques. Very good. Hannah from Beaufort would like to know whether Lazarus went to heaven and then came back when Jesus resurrected him. And why is Jesus called the Son of Man? Well, that's a good question. Um, Lazarus did not go to heaven in the sense of th- that we think of heaven today. Uh, Jesus uh, told a parable. Some think it's not a parable uh, in Luke 16. If it's not a parable, then it is, um, you know, a true story, but it changes nothing. Uh, some would say, well, it's a parable and it teaches a biblical or heavenly truth. Um, and some would take exception to that because in the parable, a man by the name of Lazarus, not the same Naz- Lazarus, is named, and that would certainly be unique to any of the parables that Christ told. But nonetheless, the message of the parable is the same. There's a rich man who dies, and he goes to to Hades, and then there's uh, a righteous man by the name of Lazarus who is a believer, 
and he goes to Abraham's bosom. One of the metaphors that Jewish people have used to describe uh, the place that a genuine believer went. Uh, so, for instance, in First Samuel uh, chapter 28, if you remember on that occasion, Samuel had an encounter with Saul. Saul went and saw a medium. And to the shock of the medium, uh, God actually responded and brought Samuel up from the dead. And he says, why have you disturbed me bringing me up? And of course, uh, Samuel's words would be in the mouth of any believer who had left this marvelous place of comfort called paradise, called Abraham's bosom, and had been brought back to the reality of the world that, uh, that Saul was living in. So Old Testament believers went to a place called Hades, and there's really two compartments to Hades. Uh, there is a righteous Hades or righteous Sheol. The word Hades is the Greek equivalent for the Hebrew word uh, Sheol. And so there's righteous Sheol where a believer went, also called Abraham's bosom, also called paradise, which can be a little bit confusing because the place that believers go today is also equally called paradise. But nonetheless, it was a little bit different. Uh, it's not just like what happens today when a believer dies. Uh, after the cross, God did something that changed the format. Today, if an unbeliever dies, he still goes to unrighteous Sheol. It's a place of suffering. And ultimately, unrighteous Sheol is going to be uh, totally placed into the lake of fire after the great white throne judgment. Uh, but at the ascension of Christ, we read this in the book of Ephesians. Uh, this is an interesting text. And it says here in verse eight, it says that when he referring to the Messiah ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives uh, and he gave gifts to men. Now, this expression, he ascended, what does it mean? Except that he also descended into the lower parts of the earth. He who descended is himself also he who ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. So verse nine here of Ephesians four states that he first descended into the lower parts of the earth, describing when he ascended uh, up on high to lead a captivity captive. Um, so what we discover is that after the Lord Jesus died on the cross, was buried and was raised at a certain point, he took the Old Testament believers who were in Abraham's bosom and he led them up on high. Uh, God paid the bill, so to speak, through Christ's death on the cross and those who had been on the layaway plan, I guess we could call it under the old covenant, we're now experiencing the blessings of the new covenant. So I believe when you ask about Lazarus in John 11, uh, probably most likely he descended into the lower parts of the earth into righteous uh, Sheol. Um, but he was, of course, not resurrected. He was raised to life. Jesus is the first to be resurrected from the dead. Lazarus was raised to life from the dead. In fact, there are seven people in the Bible who had that experience. In either case, he eventually died. Um, and I assume uh, within that it was after the death and burial and resurrection of Christ because the, the resurrection of Lazarus took place uh, about two weeks before Jesus died on the cross. When you come to John 11, you're coming to the end of Christ's earthly ministry. 
So it was just a few weeks before he actually bled and died on Golgotha. So though we don't know because his death is not recorded in scripture, I'm assuming, and I think it's safe to assume that he had died, he died sometime after even Jesus ascended into heaven. So when he died a second time, if I can use that term, uh, he went into the presence of the Lord, much like a believer does today. So today to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Where? In Abraham's bosom and righteous Sheol, no, but to be present in new covenant paradise in the new Jerusalem, which is going to become a part of the new heaven and the new earth at the end of uh, the millennial reign of Messiah. When God makes a, a new heaven and a new earth, the capital city, the new Jerusalem, where a believer goes today, will literally physically descend on the earth. When an unbeliever dies, he's absent from the body and he goes to the place where even old covenant unbelievers went to unrighteous Sheol. And someday all those people who are in unrighteous Sheol or Hades will stand before God in the great white throne judgment and their ultimate end will be the lake of fire. So that's a good question. I appreciate it. Uh, Seventh-day Adventists and some others use it to teach soul sleep. I don't think that's the intent of the passage. And there's nothing that indicates that old covenant saints uh, soul sleep. Certainly not from the parable that Jesus told in Luke 16 of Lazarus, who is in a place of conscious blessing, just like the unbeliever was in a place of conscious torment. There's no such thing as soul sleep. The body sleeps, but not the soul, not the person in the body. And the second part of that question, Jesus, son of man. Yeah. So um, there are three principal titles that are given of the Messiah, son of David, son of God, son of man. Son of David emphasizes his right to the throne because uh, God, when he spoke of the Messiah, said that he would a be a descendant of Abraham, uh, b that he would come from the tribe of Judah, and c that he would come from the family of David. So God kept tightening and tightening and tightening the focus so that we could identify the true Messiah. And so Jewish people, based on Second Samuel seven, understood that Messiah would be a son of David. And so that term really speaks to the fact that he is Israel's king. Son of God speaks of his deity, the emphasis on his deity. Son of man, which is also a messianic term. You find it in the prophet Daniel. We've been working our way through the book of Daniel. We see the son of man coming before the ancient of days, before the father. You see two members of the Godhead interacting with each other. Uh, That emphasizes his humanity. And of course, both the deity and humanity of Messiah is underscored, whether it's in the prophet Micah or the prophet Isaiah, a baby will be born and the baby's name will be called mighty God. Uh, His name will be called Emmanuel. It's a Hebrew word that means God with us. So three very, very important titles for the Messiah. And we will uh, be examining these as we continue our way through the prophet Daniel. Very good. 843-525-1859. Toll free, 877-924-7980. And as I mentioned earlier, you can always reach us uh, via email at tbl at wagp.net. Calls are lighting up right now. We'll see if anybody is brave enough to go online. Um, But for the time being... Let me give a little commercial here while the lines are all filling up. Uh, We are doing a series on Wednesday night on pneumatology. It will eventually be placed... uh, 
on our website at searchthescriptures.org. So pneumatology, pneumatos is the Greek word for wind or spirit. And so this is a study of the Holy Spirit. What does the Bible say about the Holy Spirit? So we've just finished the first section. Every week stands on its own. So if you can only come on occasion, you'll learn and you'll grow. But it's very important to understand who the Holy Spirit is and how he operates in our life. And we've already dealt with his person and his deity. And beginning uh, this Wednesday, we begin a new section where we deal with the ministry of the Holy Spirit at different ages in the Old Testament, during the life of Christ, under the New Covenant, and even during the Great Tribulation in our time in heaven. So we'll be looking at five aspects of the Spirit's work at different times in human history. So that's Wednesdays at 630. We also have a ministry for the children during the same time. Very good. Now our uh, caller has dictated their question. He is uh, going to Charlotte, North Carolina on vacation and would like to know if you know of a good church his family can attend while there. Well, there is a church that's had a good reputation. I think they've done a pastor change recently, so I'm not sure where they stand right now, but it was called Calvary Church. In fact, there are some places uh, in Charlotte that you can see this church. It's actually technically, I think, in Pineville, uh, so in the northern section of of Charlotte. Um, It was, for a long time, the largest church in greater Charlotte, but it's always had a good reputation for Uh, preaching the Bible, but you can actually at a couple of different places in Charlotte, see the church and the architect designed it so that it looked like a a crown, uh, the building from a distance, uh, emphasizing that Christ is King, but it is, and has been a Bible preaching church. I think they've recently gone through a pastoral change. So I don't know what the latest is, but, uh, historically it's had a good reputation. And if I were in Charlotte, that's probably where I would start. Very good. Chris from Hiram, Georgia writes, um, I've got some questions about the book of Hosea. One, did God command Hosea to take a wife of harlotry, meaning she already was a harlot, or that she would eventually become one? And secondly, uh, were all of the children conceived illegitimate? Thirdly, does Hosea go to get Gomer back in chapter three as a husband or as a friend and then remarry her? Thank you for your faithfulness in preaching God's word. Well, the book of Hosea is an interesting little book. Um, he's what we call one of the minor prophets. Uh, he's not minor because he's less important, but the designation from the fourth century uh, AD on uh, for major and minor prophets is to distinguish the length of material that the prophet wrote. So he, he has a short ministry, but uh, short writing compared to, say, Isaiah or Jeremiah or Ezekiel, but it's power packed. And the book really divides into two halves. Uh, The first three chapters deal with uh, this adulterous wife that he marries, Gomer, and uh, in Hosea, who is a faithful husband. And then it's contrasted with the second half of the book. They're uneven halves in, in chapters four through 14, where this adulterous wife is compared to adulterous Israel. And this faithful husband, Hosea, is compared to the faithful Lord. So the adultery of Gomer in chapter 1 illustrates the sins of Israel in chapters 4 through 9, or 4 through 7. And then the humility, the degradation uh, of of this woman and the shame that Gomer experienced illustrates the judgment that Israel is going to experience. And then the restoration 
that uh, Jose expresses in bringing his wife back illustrates the restoration of the people of Israel. So the question you ask is, you know, did God call him to willfully marry an adulteress? And I would say no. I think the wife of adultery or the wife of harlotry, and I know we use the term harlotry sometimes just to describe a a prostitute, but God actually uses the term of someone who commits adultery, Uh, a person who commits adultery is living the life of a harlot. In either case, the wife of adultery or harlotry does not describe her at the time of the marriage, but it's really a prophecy. It's anticipating what she is going to become. So did God deliberately command Hosea to marry a known harlot and a worshiper of idols? Of course not. He would never do anything contrary to what he revealed in his word. But just like uh, Israel becomes unfaithful, just like local churches become unfaithful, a church can start well, but if given enough time and they wander away from God, they can end up like unbelieving Israel did. And you can marry a woman who you think is a great woman of God, and then she can end up being unfaithful to you. And so he marries in the will of God because God wants him to marry this woman and her life becomes a prophecy of how God is going to deal with the people of Israel. God loves Israel with an everlasting love and he's not forsaken Israel, still hasn't forsaken Israel, still committed to the nation of Israel, doing things today in Israel uh, to bring them back to himself It's an everlasting covenant that he made with the Jewish people. It was not conditioned on their obedience or their faithfulness to him. And the book of Hosea really describes that. So very good. 843-525-1859, toll free 877-924-7980. And our next caller would like to know your opinion on why there are so many people who are still in cults today when they have access to information on the Internet and other places that would reveal that they are not following Christ's teachings. Well, the nature of deception is that you don't know you're being deceived. And so like the off-quoted verse, do not be deceived, bad company corrupts good morals. We often take that and we apply that verse, 1 Corinthians fifteen thirty-three, to the kind of friends that we keep. And that's a legitimate application. But in its original context, God is warning his people to guard themselves against false teachers, lest they be deceived by false teachers. And so there's admonitions throughout the New Testament that there will be false teachers, just like there were in the Old Testament, as Peter reminds us. And so we need to be discerning. John will say you need to test the spirits to see whether they be of God. So number one, there are believers who can get carried away by strange doctrine, but unbelievers very often get carried away by strange doctrine. Uh, Again, because the nature of deception is you don't know you're being deceived. That's what makes deception deception. And so if someone does not have some kind of a plumb line in which to evaluate why they believe what they believe, then they have no ability to discern. Um, I was having lunch with some families on Sunday. I have lunch with new members, and uh, one of them asked a great question. They had a son who was, you know, in this movement that uh, basically, you know, disavowed the Bible and 
espoused a lot of, you know, just wrong beliefs, uh, karma. Uh, And so they think, well, you know, everything works out for good. And, well, you know, that's a promise that is true as it relates to the believer. We know that God works all things together for good to those who know God, to those who are literally, it's articular, as the King James reflects it most accurately, the called. He's speaking of a specific group of people to the called. It's, a, it's actually a noun. It's not a verb like it reads in most of our English texts. To those who are the called, a specific group of people, according to his purpose. So um, it's not uh, a general truth. And so he, his question was, well, how do I deal with my son who's into this philosophy called karma and rejects the Bible? And I said, well, you know, there's a couple of important questions that everyone has to ask and answer. Now, they can be intellectually dishonest and say, well, don't confuse me with the facts or I'm unwilling to even examine to see if something's credible. Then they've made their decision and people can do that and they will do it. Jesus said they would do it. But the big questions he has to ask and answer is, number one, is Jesus Christ who he claimed to be? Is he God in human flesh or is he just another religious man? Listen, if he's God in human flesh, then everything that ever came from his mouth is absolute truth. Uh, it, it's not just suggestions or another philosophy you can embrace. It's truth. And every belief and every um, intellectual uh, thought that comes to our mind has to be evaluated in the one who called himself the truth. So is Jesus God? And number two, is the Bible true? And of course, we discussed, uh, is there any evidences to show the Bible's true? I, I wrote, uh, I've written a number of chapters now uh, for Answers in Genesis in four different apologetic books that they have. And one of those chapters we put into booklet form that you can get on Amazon. I don't make any money on it. Uh, I, I, we set it so no one would make a dime on it. But if you go to Amazon.com and type in um, Carl Brogy, how to prove the Bible is true, it's a little booklet where I go through five evidences to show that the Bible is the only book God ever wrote. So, um, again, if you have a plumb line, then someone can begin to uh, have a basis by which they can discern the group that they are in. But people are in cults for a couple of reasons. Number one. Jesus taught in the kingdom parables in Matthew 13. And when he gives the interpretation, he says, the one who sows the good seed is the son of man and the field is the word world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed the tares is the devil. And so just as God is out there uh, sowing living seed, the devil is, is sowing his evil seed. And you see that in the different cults. And people are in cults very often for one of two reasons. Either A, because they're really searching, and the cult was the first to reach them, often because of the disobedience and lackadaisical attitude of God's people who don't share their faith. Or B, they've heard the truth, and because they rejected the truth, they didn't like the implications of the truth, they believed a lie. And Jesus uh, taught that principle in John 12. Uh, The greatest illustration of that principle is yet in the future during the time of the great tribulation, where not just apostasy, but the apostasy, it's articular, is going to take place where there will be a, a, a multitude of people who will reject Christianity and believe a lie. And the reason is, is because they rejected what was true. 
So you got to meet people where they're at. You try to reason with them. Um, sometimes there's no reasoning, and all you can do is really pray for them and intercede for them, and that's certainly not a waste of time because God responds and hears the prayers of his people. Great question. Let's go to the next one. All right. We've got a live caller standing by all the way from North Carolina. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Rick. Good morning, Pastor. Good morning. Had a... a, a a pretty good debate yesterday, believe it or not, on social media with uh, several folks, and one of them actually was from Australia, um, concerning women acting in the role of pastor, and tried to you know, reason with folks and give, give them biblical principles as to why women should not be pastors. And I just wonder if you would just briefly go over that and just... Perhaps I left something out that I should have said or did not say, um, but I would appreciate if you could if you could expand on that. Well, a couple of things that might be helpful. Of course, one of the central passages in the New Testament that addresses this issue would be First Timothy chapter two, where there the apostle says, "Let a woman quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet." For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being quite deceived fell into transgression. But women shall be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity and self-respect. So Paul makes it very clear in a number of passages that men and women are equal. God always affirms the equality of men and women. Um, But while they are equal, they have different roles. Uh, There are some things that only women can do. There are some things that only men can do. It's not a matter of better or greater or lesser. It's an issue of what God has called us to do. So in the home, for instance, the man is the head of the wife. Now, typically people who reject male headship in the church who want to make women pastors will also reject male headship in the home. Uh, Not always, but typically. But again, God says that just as... um, The father is the head of Christ and Christ is the head of the church. Even so, he says the man is the head of the woman. If you have a biblical theology, then you know that Christ is not any less than the father. He and the father are one. They are equal. The Bible affirms the deity of both. Yet even within the Trinity, there are different roles that unfold. And so very clearly men and women are equal, but they have different roles. And so when Paul Uh, is describing here the local assembly and what it should look like when they meet. He makes it very clear that a woman is not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Now, some say, well, that only applies when the church is gathered on a Sunday morning, but it doesn't apply in a Sunday school class. So you have women teaching mixed Sunday school classes or women teaching Bible studies in their home where men are present. No, that's silly. Uh, number one, it's just as silly as when he says in the verse prior to that, women, I, I want to adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly and discreetly. Uh, d- does that mean that a woman only has to clothe herself modestly and discreetly when the church is assembled and she can dress like a hooker when she's out in public or in her home, you know, leading a Bible study? Of course not. They, these are these are timeless principles wherever they are to be expressed. But there's a number of parachurch organizations today who say, well, that applies to the local church. It doesn't apply to us. So if a woman wants to teach at some parachurch organization over men, then it's fine. Well, that, that's really dishonoring the word of God. 
And this is not by any stretch some cultural issue like foot washing. This is a timeless principle because he takes it one all the way back to the creative order for it was not at uh, first. First, he says it was not um, Eve who was created first, but Adam and then Eve. So in the creative order and you go back and read the Genesis account, it becomes clear that the woman comes alongside of her husband and she is his helper. She is his helpmate as the old English renders it. Um, Again, God has a, a particular purpose for her. And then he gives a second reason. It was not Eve, who, Adam who was deceived, but Eve. Adam wasn't deceived. Adam's sin in many respects uh, was different in that he sinned with his eyes wide open. He knew exactly what he was doing. But Eve, because she stepped out of her role and took the lead leadership that should have been um, expressed by Adam, she opened herself up to deception. And churches open themselves up to deception when they allow women to take the roles of men. And that's happening all across America. Uh, if you, I, I, I've given a sermon on this. It's a two, it's a two one-hour sermons. And if someone's really interested in studying this, because even as I'm speaking, people are saying, well, what about Deborah? Uh, what about Miriam? What about Huldah? What about the four daughters of uh, Philip and so forth? Well, I go through every single passage that people use. Remember, God's not going to contradict himself. God, there are no contradictions in the Bible. Scripture interprets itself. But if you take verses out of context, you can really distort their meaning. But in that sermon, I also document how a number of uh, mainline denominations started by veering in this area. Why? Because they were giving way to the culture. They, they wanted to be popular. And these same denominations who want to be popular now are embracing all kinds of evil. And so they allowed women to be pastors. They allowed women to take roles that God gave uniquely to men. And when that happened, those denominations became more and more deceived. And so now you have these mainline denominations that are espousing, you know, homosexual lifestyle as an alternative. They're performing gay marriages and so forth. We are seeing the fruit of deception. And this is the fruit of a reprobate mind. So God makes it very clear. This is not some time bound thing. This is timeless. This is part of God's principle. And that's really the short answer. So what I would suggest to the caller would be uh, to maybe guide his friend, assuming his friend is willing to be intellectually honest, send him the links, go to searchthescriptures.org, highlight the two links, email it back to your friend in Australia and say, listen to this. And tell me what you think. Now, there's a big movement in Australia where the church is being feminized. And there are women who are taking the role. And, you know, you'll meet women in America who will say, well, God called me to preach. God called me to be a pastor. God didn't call you to be a pastor. The, the will of God never contradicts the word of God. And so he brings it back to the created order. He brings it back to how the fall unfolded. But then he really affirms women by reminding them that they have a different role and it's the bearing of children. It's the raising of children. That's no small thing. And a woman who serves as a pastor, if she really functions as a pastor and she also functions as a mother, something is going to suffer. There's no way a woman can be an effective pastor and raise her children properly because of the role that a pastor plays and her children are going to suffer. And so it's not a small thing 
for a woman to raise her children, to be a worker at home. That's a big thing to build into the lives of those children. She's building into the next generation of leaders in the church. And that's really important. That's not a small thing. And we don't want to forsake that, but we're doing it across America. And look at our families. They're a mess. Very good. 843-525-1859. Toll free, 877-924-7980. Or email us at tbl at net. Esther from Varnville would like to know, from a Christian standpoint, is it okay to eat lamb? Is it okay to eat lamb? Yes. Um, remember, they ate the Passover lamb, correct? So that was pretty, that was pretty major. Uh, there are two central passages. I have a sermon on this. If you go to searchthescriptures.org and click on the Romans icon, uh, I spent over the course of three years preaching chapter by chapter and verse by verse through the book of Romans. And in uh, the 14th chapter, Paul deals with issues of clean and unclean meats. And so I go back and set it in its historical context. And there are two central Old Testament passages, Leviticus 11 and Deuteronomy 14, that describes what a Jew could eat or not eat. So God states specifically that cud-chewing animals with split, split hoofs could be eaten. And this would be... You know, beef cattle and sheep and goat and deer and gazelle and things like that. Um, And then he also gives a list of unclean animals like camels and rabbits and pigs and uh, certain creeping things that they couldn't eat and certain fish that they couldn't eat. He tells us that saltwater fish and freshwater fish that had fins and scales could be eaten, but uh, those kinds of fish that were scavengers or had no no fins like catfish or or scavengers like lobsters and crabs and shrimp and mussels and clams and oysters and things we love today and octopus, that those could not be eaten. Uh, he did the same with birds. There were certain uh, buzzards, so to speak, uh, that could not be eaten. Uh, and then there were other things that could be eaten right down to the insects. And again, the the reason behind this is God distinguished Israel under the old covenant not so much by the internal, but by the external. And so they were a peculiar people in the way they dressed and the way they cut their hair and the days they observed in the diet that they had. Now there were, and also in the moral dictates that they obeyed. So, but some of the law was ceremonial and some was moral. And this is why it's very important to know, well, what's ceremonial, what is time bound and what is eternal? And again, I walk through that in this sermon on Romans 14 that I think would be of great help to you. But Jesus in Mark 7 declared all meats clean. He reminded us that what defiled a man was not what went into him and then was eliminated, but what came out of his heart. And so in Mark chapter 7, uh, he makes um, this statement. Uh, He said, what defiles a man is uh, that which comes out of the heart. And then he gives this whole list of things, uh, evil thoughts, fornications, thefts, murders, and so forth. And there's a little parenthetical note here in Mark chapter uh, 7, and he declared all meats to be clean in verse 19. So God doesn't put those restrictions on us today. Now, part of sensitivity in the New Covenant Church 
was that if someone grew up in a background where uh, those things were prohibited, Paul said, you know, you need to be willing to yield your freedom in order to be sensitive to their consciences, because there was a transition period, and also sensitive in terms of uh, winning them to the Lord Jesus. You want to be all things to all men so that you can win people to Christ. And these are these are very, very important principles. So obviously, even if you didn't know Deuteronomy um, or Leviticus, Deuteronomy 14 or Leviticus 11, you'd probably figure out, oh, well, I, I think lamb must be okay for a Jew to eat, and therefore certainly for a Gentile, because of the Passover lamb. Now, you may not know that God instructed them to eat the Passover lamb. And so lamb comes, of course, from sheep. They they call older lamb uh, mutton, but it's the same same meat. And the animal had to be at least a year old. You can read of it in Exodus 12 and God specified that the animal couldn't be, you know, damaged or blemished and couldn't have any kind of, uh, you know, scabs on its fur or even on its eyelids because it was a picture of Messiah. And this is why on the 10th of Nisan, on what we call Palm Sunday, they would march the Passover lambs into the city of Jerusalem where the priests would inspect them all week long and then on Passover, they would be prepared for sacrifice. And so it's not by accident that Jesus, who is our Passover lamb, as Paul calls him, who is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, uh, is makes his entrance the same day the sheep did uh, on Palm Sunday. And about a third of the gospels are dedicated to the last week of his life. And that's not by accident either, because they are examining this one who calls himself Messiah, the Christ, and the evidence is that he was indeed the Passover lamb, that he was without spot or blemish, and therefore the one who came to die as our substitute. So yeah, eat lamb. Uh, I'll tell you how I like it. Um, I know a lot of people like to eat a roast of lamb, but when I was growing up in New England, my dad always ordered our meats from a certain meat market, and they would take those uh, roasts of lambs and they would cut them into lamb steaks. And boy, that is just great. Lamb steaks on a grill. Wow. Those are fantastic. It, it, you have to specify that with a butcher today because usually it's always done as a, as a roast. But if you cut them up into steaks, oh, it's the best, Rick. You, you've got to yeah. try that. How, how do you like it as far as doneness? Well, um, you know, you cook them well because it's lamb. So it's really? kind of like uh, pork. But, you know, I, um, I, I, you know my, my mom all growing up, she made these lamb roasts and yeah. uh, really cooked them well. Yeah. And, uh, but they don't uh, have to be dry if you well, do see, it right. Well, see, that was it. They came out dry. They don't they? have to. They can be juicy mm. and luscious. It's, it, it's all done yeah. with the cook. So. Okay. Well, somebody so, served it to So you need to, to help me, your mom. Um, She's, what, 97? 97 or? next month. Well, it's not yeah. too late for yeah. her to learn. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I like mine medium. Rare. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Our next caller says that she has Christian friends who attend a Messianic Jewish synagogue where they believe Christ was the Messiah and they honor Jewish holidays, such as Passover instead of Easter, for example, because they believe certain holy days and celebrations are closer to the interpretation of what is in the Bible. Is it okay? And how does this person explain to her friends why Christians worship on Sunday, as well as why we celebrate Christmas and Easter, etc., instead of Passover and other Jewish holy days? Well, it's a good question. And again, I address this issue in Romans 14, 
because Paul deals not simply with clean and unclean meats, but he also deals with the observance of certain days. And under the New Covenant, uh, those Old Testament celebrations, that, and there are seven feasts that God ordained in the Torah. Now, there's some others like uh, the Feast of Purim that you find during the time of Esther. You find the Jewish people uh, also uh, setting a holiday, so to speak. Uh, it's more of what we would call a civil holiday than a religious holiday, though everything in Israel had religious undertones. But during the time of Jacob of Maccabees, when he um, was able to regain the temple, in fact, we'll be studying this as we work through Daniel, uh, so came the Feast of Lights or the Feast of Hanukkah. And Jesus even recognized that in John's Gospel. Um, but understand the feasts of the Old Testament were fulfilled or are being fulfilled in, in the Messiah himself. So there were four Old Testament feasts that were fulfilled in the first coming. There are three Old Testament feasts that will be fulfilled in the second coming. It's not by accident that Jesus dies on Passover. It's not by accident that the sinless son of God is seen in unleavened bread is buried on the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. It is not by accident that on Sunday that Messiah is raised from the dead on the Feast of First Fruits. It's not by accident that on the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks, what we call Pentecost, you know, Jesus died on Sunday, walked on the earth for, uh, uh, walked on the earth for 40 days and then ascended into heaven, and then 10 days later on the 50th day after the resurrection, which was kind of the capstone of the Feast of First Weeks, uh, we think of Pentecost purely as New Testament. It's an old covenant deal. Uh, The Holy Spirit comes. So four of the first feasts have already been fulfilled. There are three that are yet to be fulfilled. The Jewish people during the time of the Great Tribulation period are going to look on him whom they have pierced, they're going to realize that Yeshua is the Messiah. Uh, and there was a few more feasts, trumpets and uh, tabernacles. They'll all be fulfilled in the second coming. So uh, Christians don't observe those because except maybe in an evangelistic way, and that would be legitimate. Uh, if you're trying to witness to a Jewish person and trying to win them to the Messiah, then you could do it in an evangelistic way, being all things to all men. But we're not under those old covenant laws because we're under a new deal, a new covenant. And while indeed uh, the Jewish people still observe the seventh day, we observe the first day of the week and honor the resurrection. That's the pattern in the New Testament. There's still one in seven days that we keep holy and we keep holy the first day of the week. All Ten Commandments have bearing. The application may change. God said to the Jewish people in Deuteronomy um, uh, chapter 5, he said, Listen, honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise that it may be well with you and that you may live long on the land. When Paul takes that same principle under the that same commandment, the fifth commandment, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he changes it just a little bit. Because the Spirit of God leads him to under the new covenant, not that you may live long on the land, but that you might live long on the earth. Why? Because God's people, for the most part, are no longer localized to a strip of geography we call Israel, but they're all over the world. 
And so the commandment applies. The application has changed. The commandment, keep one day in seven holy, still applies. And most evangelical Christians blow it off. They do what's convenient. Oh, you feel like going to church today? Nah, I don't feel like it. What do you want to do? Well, well, we'll just turn on the TV. Maybe we'll live stream Pastor Carl. Or, nah, let's just go to the beach. Or uh, let's get our vacation started. And they, they just really kind of blow it off. Um, my son, uh, emailed me on Sunday afternoon or texted me and they were on their way to Florida for their family vacation. And, uh, they, uh, a friend said to him, why are you going to church? Uh, this is your vacation. Don't you take off from church on your vacation? And his wife, I thought so appropriately said, well, does God ever take a vacation on you? You know, and of course not. God is committed to us. And, but we have such a flippant view of who God is and what he's called us to do and all under the banner. We're under grace, you know, we can do whatever we want and we've turned the grace of God into licentiousness in our day. And it's very, very sad, but uh, that would be my quick answer. You might want to listen to the message on Romans 14. It's actually a couple of messages in there and I think you'll get a more detailed answer. All right. We've got a live caller on the air here. Let's go to him now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Dr. Brogy. Thank you for taking my call. Yes, thanks for calling. What can we do to help you? I was reading in the newspaper, uh, our state uh, state Senator Tom Davis has been uh, advocating for uh, medical marijuana use. And I know a few years ago I watched uh, Sanjay Gupta on CNN talk about it. It showed uh, these young children who were suffering from, uh, I guess it was epilepsy, epileptic seizures or, you know, stuff like that. And, you know, your heart breaks. I don't have any children, but I have a niece and nephew, and there's nothing I wouldn't do for them. But I know in Scripture it talks about uh, things uh, that you are to uh, stay away from, and one of them is uh, sorcery. And I think you mentioned that uh, sorcery was translated into the word uh, pharmacia, which we get pharmacy from, and I think, you know, talked about, you know, drugs. Uh, they they made a big thing about separating the medical marijuana from the other marijuana uh, and the letters. I forget what the letters were, but they said that basically the medical marijuana doesn't have the ingredient that makes you high. I know it's a slippery slope, but when faced with, you know, if that's the only thing, supposedly, if that's the only thing that could help your child with his, his or her seizures or, or whatever, I was just wondering, how does that square with, with uh, Scripture? Well, it's a good question. You know, certainly there are uh, drugs, so to speak, that, you know, people abuse, and like morphine, some are morphine addicts, some are cocaine addicts. Uh, but on the same hand, some of the same things that are abused can be used uh, in an appropriate way. We give morphine to a dying person. Um, the um, epilepsy National Epilepsy Foundation uh, advocates that there are a number of other drugs that are just as effective as so-called medical marijuana. In fact, I've yet to read a study where medical marijuana was uniquely set apart uh, as a means of treatment that no other treatment could be used. But even then, if that were the case, let's say they find some, some disease 
that could only be treated by medical marijuana. One, you don't have to smoke it because then it becomes more recreational. And look, let's just face it. I mean, this is disgusting to me that Tom Davis has taken this position. This is the first I've heard of it. And if it's true, and I will do my own personal research, if it's true, he will not have my vote. We we have so many weak-willed people right now. We have this morning a senator in our state legislation this morning as we speak, this hour, He's up there in Columbia trying to defend in his, count, in his county why they shouldn't have transgender bathrooms. And he is being attacked. He's being beat up on. I've already gotten a call this morning uh, for standing up for what is right. And so, um, you know, I, I'm not in favor of it. Look, we've got these dope heads all across America, uh, and we're only feeding the problem when we want to legalize marijuana and I know the arguments, I've read them. We, we went through this back when I was in college. People wrote and gave speeches and when I was at college in, back in the 1970s over this issue. Uh, it's just, uh, it, to me, it's a failure of leadership. Yeah, and I see Rick's bringing it up now on the Internet and he's affirming what you've said. He doesn't have my vote anymore. He's done as far as I'm concerned. I would never vote for someone who's going to advocate the use of smoking dope for medical purposes. Look, you know, you meet these people, and to me it's very, very sad. You know, when you meet these dope heads, you know, their, their brain is fried. When they've been on it long enough, they, they can't even think straight, a lot of them. They're just spacey. And, you know, look what's happening. I mean, all these states are wanting to legalize marijuana. Why? Because they want what Colorado has. They have all these people in Colorado and the other states where it's legal and they're going in there to buy it and they're taxing it and the revenue is going up in that state by millions of dollars. Yeah, wonderful. You know, let's let's legalize gambling in all 50 states, too, and we'll cut some revenue. And, you know, we're cutting our own feet off as a nation by this immoral activity. So um, I'm not in favor of it. Uh, I'm not in favor of legalizing marijuana in any respect. People say, well, look, alcohol's legalized, you know, and I like a little glass of wine, and why can't I have a joint? Because um, I, I think it's very unwise. Um, I think the Bible would dictate against it. And you're right, the, there is not a verse in Scripture, thou shalt not smoke a joint or pot, but the Greek word is pharmakeia. We get our word pharmacy from it, and it is translated in the New Testament as sorcery. And these drugs are a gateway into sorcery, into the occult. You look at any of these rock bands who literally worship the devil, and you read their history, it always, almost always starts with drugs. And the entryway drugs for many people is marijuana. And that becomes the gateway drug into harder things. But it becomes the gateway into opening yourself up into the demonic realm and many people have. And so, yeah, let's make America worse than it already is. Let's, uh, let's not only reject God, let's invite demonic activity to sweep our nation. And let's open that door wide through pot. Uh, that, that's just, uh, it's just very, very foolish. And it's very sad that we have anyone in politics even thinking that way. But that's the evil day that we live in and the uninformed day that we live in. All right, I think we've got time for one more. This is a fairly short one. Um, 
Gina would like to know if you are familiar with Chris Rosebrow and his pirate Christian radio program where he exposes pastors he claims to be false teachers. If so, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I am. He's um, He doesn't go typically for some of the lower fruit, you know, like... Uh, uh, some of the blatantly false prophets like uh, Joel Olstein, um, he doesn't go after those folks. He goes after the little more difficult ones. Uh, he tends to ignore uh, the Joyce Myers and the Joel Olsteins, and he goes after uh, some that have entered into mainline denominations. And um, he attacks some people. Some think he's unfair, you know, and chewing up Ed Young or Andy Stanley. I don't know that I would call Ed Young or Andy Stanley at this point, say, a false prophet, but do they have some false doctrine? You better believe it. Uh, Stephen Furtick, Perry Noble, um, he, he goes after these guys. Um, his his pirate radio is, if I remember correctly, I think I heard this maybe on our own station, uh, is like the number one web radio uh, across America. And so a lot of people are listening to him. And uh, here's, here's, I think, the good thing that he's doing. He's just trying to get God's people to be discerning. He's trying to get them to read their Bible and to ask, what does the Bible say? And so um, what he typically does is he takes a sermon and he plays a portion of it. And then he says, okay, well, let's stop and evaluate what we just, re- what we just heard. Is that true? Well, let's look at this scripture. Let's look at that scripture. That's a good thing. Uh, God's people should be able to think for themselves. And, you know, the the door has been opened wide uh, in a lot of different realms. And today, if you, you know, speak against a Rick Warren or a Beth Moore or whatever, people spit you up and chew you out and say, what's your problem? And uh, it's ignorance. People today do not know their Bible. And there's a lot of uh, older Christians in America who grew up in an anemic atmosphere where the Bible was not taught. Now this younger generation is experiencing the fruit of it, and they get all mad at you. And uh, they can't, they have very little discernment and very little insight. And, you know, you love them and you just have to uh, do your best to care for them, but you can't stop doing what God's called you to do. So I think what he's doing is a good thing. I'm, I'm not against it. Everything I've heard or read by him in articles, I, I, I have found to be healthy and sound. And, and now if he comes out and says something that's, you know, unfair or whatever, great. And then, then we'll have a discussion, but I've not seen that yet. Anyway, we are out of time for today. Another hour has gone, but thank you for joining us. Uh, these broadcasts are put online at WAGP.net or at searchthescriptures.org. And so if you miss a broadcast, you can always listen to it later. You can send the links to your friends if there's a question that you've asked for them or trying to get an answer to, and they can listen to it at their leisure. Hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm.